you are in the Grotto Pod. I am in the Grotto Pod. We are in the Grotto Pod. I'm in the Grotto Pod. It turns out the door is open. I'm going to close the door, okay. even though I'm dreading it. Because it's going to get really hot in the Grotto Pod because it's, it's really hot, hot today. hot in San Francisco. She is Bridget Quinn. I am. I am Larry Rosen. Welcome to uh, the Grotto Pod, the only writing podcast that is transmitted from an actual pod. Whoa, almost dropped my uh, notes because... And once you drop it, you can't pick it up again. Right, because you'll hit a wall with your ears. Uh-huh. Today, our guest is... Bridget's friend, Todd Oppenheimer. And your friend. Well, we'll explore your personal connection Mm -hmm. with Todd. Uh, And I am really looking forward to this podcast. Uh, Todd is, he's different than uh, all of our other guests so far in that he is a writer, he's a journalist, but he's also a magazine publisher. That's right. And the magazine he publishes... If I do that, you know. I just kicked something. The sound you just heard was my co-host <laughs> kicking one of the metal legs of our little desk here, and I do it two or three times. Yeah, you might hear that a few times. So, if you were wondering what that sound is, that's what it is. I'm uh, wearing clogs. It's a very San Francisco thing, uh, or a very chef thing. Mm, Chefs true. wear clogs. Yeah, uh, and I'll bet Todd wears clogs occasionally too. I bet he does. We should ask. We should. Anyways, uh, point being, Todd is a magazine publisher. The magazine he publishes is called Craftsmanship, and it's not your run-of-the-mill type of magazine, is it? Not at all. In fact, it's kind of like the New Yorker used to be. Like the New Yorker, I remember from the late '80s, really long, in-depth articles that are still super interesting about topics you didn't know you were interested in. Those were the John Seabrook days. Yeah, I like to put them. I mean, I remember, I remember reading a two-part article. I think it was about frozen peas. <laughs> I'm not kidding, and it was fascinating. And I'm not kidding. I'm not. This is not. A no, joke. I know. I understand it. And yeah. that actually was what I used to like about the New Yorker too. And it was Seabrook, and I, was it Mark Singer was the guy's name who used Maybe. to do stuff too. I don't remember. It was. Um, it was possibly by John McPhee that article. I only think that because he sometimes wrote these long digressions. About the natural world. Yeah. Too. There was that one about oranges he wrote. That was long, too. Now, the articles I read in, in Craftsmanship, however, weren't that long. No, but long. No, no, no. Oh, my God. Not. I don't not, want to scare people. Like, not New Yorker 80s long. Right. But long by today's standards of magazines and even online magazines. Yeah. I, I mean, they're real. They're real what reporting. They long form. Long form. Real yeah. reporting on interesting topics that you didn't know were interesting. Basically. Exactly. But I think exactly. there's more to it. And we're going to get that. Sometimes out you do know because it's like tequila. Yeah. We're going to get that out of Todd. Now, you um, don't give it away because it's because, okay. you know, your children are friends. Oh, I gave that away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know buddies. more of Todd's story than I do. Yeah. Well, maybe like secondhand just because I've known him for years. Right. But I am really intrigued at what the process is of doing, of going from, well, I'm, I'm a journalist and I'm showing up in the Atlantic mm-hmm. and the New Yorker. Yeah. And I'm going to reach for my notes so I can remember the name of the book he wrote. The uh, Flickering Mind. Flickering Mind, The False Promise of Technology in the Classroom and How Learning Can Be Solved. He uh, published that in 2004. Big book. Uh, by then, he was already uh, a winner of the National Magazine Award for Public Interest Reporting. Yep. Um, how you go from that and you decide... Uh, 25 years into your career, I think I'm going to publish a magazine now. Well, I don't want to speak for Todd, but here I go. I I, I, I don't give it away. (laughs) I want to hear Todd tell us. From the horse's mouth. And I'm curious to see if what Todd tells us matches what you already know. What I think, yeah. What you think you already know. What I think I already know. Uh, Around here, Todd is known as the expert in organic foods. Oh my God! His lunch every day is—it's a sight to behold. Unbelievable! It really is fantastic. Sometimes he comes in with homemade bread. Remember when he was doing the bread story? I don't remember the story, but I availed myself of some of those hunks of bread. God! And then he would have like salted butter Mm -hmm. and really good. Now I don't want to knock Fred's baguette. 
But no, no, no. There's no connection. Todd's bread really. No. Also, Todd makes his own bread sometimes bought. and brings yeah. it in. Yeah. But uh, Todd's the kind of person who remember the salad comment that you made. Yeah, that um, everyone eats salads here every day. Everyone, oh, um, Todd eats salads occasionally too, but there's always like. A roasted joint of some kind of meat that he's right. Done yeah, in fact, on the Todd, barbecue that goes with it. Yeah, or, don't let me. Uh, you know, don't let me uh, lead you to believe that Todd is any kind of vegetarian. No, only no, of course not. a crackpot like me would be a vegetarian. <laughs> Correct. Todd has looked askance at me more than once about <clears throat> yeah. that particular. He, he's uh, a good griller of some diet. kind because he always has some kind of delicious meat thing with his many many vegetables, which he always right. has with him. Right, and sometimes his salads they look like just he started picking stuff out of the garden and bought it. But he, boom. but that's exactly he's right. Seriously, farmed a table. Yes, he is a farm to table guy. He is a habitual wearer of car, uh, cargo shorts, but not today for reasons known only to God. He is wearing long He's pants. He's wearing linen. On an 85 degree day. No, he looks very sharp in linen. He does. Well, let's go get him and get the answers to these and more questions. Pressing questions. Pressing questions. Uh, Todd, welcome. Thanks. Happy to be here. <clears throat> How was Happy lunch? even though it's hot. It's really hot. It's going to get hotter. Uh, Todd is looking very natty to start no, our day. He looks so nice. I feel I like know. we're. I hope you. Know, I hope that whatever you dressed up for, you did already. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. It wasn't for us. <clears throat> so I, t- I tried to make up so that you guys couldn't say, "Well, you have a great face for radio." <laughs> no, you're so. You look so elegant that I wish. Well, you know what? We could take a picture and post it. We should actually. Uh huh. But I, of course, am a little disappointed because I was all set to say, "Hey, BQ, you got two guys in shorts here." I know. I'd be you so are lucky. habitual shorts wearer That's like true. me. I, w- I would have. But uh, now that we've got the pleasantries out of the way, yeah, yeah, get get, get down uh, brass tacks. Let's get started on your story. What I want to talk about today is a few things. Mostly, I'm really fascinated with the idea of what makes a successful journalist. And I would call you a successful journalist. Award-winning. Award-winning, book writing. New Yorker, Atlantic. New Yorker, Atlantic, uh, The Nation. Decide mid-career to switch gears and start a magazine. And and I also want to delve into what that magazine means because it's not like you started Motor Trend. Right. You know, you started something really different. But before that, I got to ask, how did you come to be miming with Robin Williams? Oh, that's wow. what's on everyone's mind. It's on everyone's really? mind. You can't oh. first if, if you were to Google listeners, friends, mm-hmm. adopting that sort of uh Grotolandia. Google Todd Oppenheimer and the first thing that will come up if you do images, will be a picture of him with Robin Williams, a young Todd Oppenheimer and a young Robin Williams. Right, 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 right. Um, You want the short version or the longer version? Actually, start with what put you in New York in the first place. Uh, Well, my first passion was to be an actor. Uh, I kind of developed this at the end of high school when we had a guy, I was down in Southern California, and we had a one of the great character actors come and work with us, Jeff Corey. Most of the listeners here are too young to remember Jeff Corey. Was he a that guy? He did a bunch of things. He was a victim of the McCarthy era in the oh, 50s. Wow. Um, he was a great character actor. He had a face like Mount Rushmore. I mean, it was just he, – <laughs> there are more curvatures and crevices in his just face rugged. than in the Rocky Mountains. It's just cool. And he was very encouraging to me and, and uh, taught us some interesting things. And I just got obsessed. <clears throat> so – after my fresh, and I'm sorry, where did you grow up? Uh, here in San Francisco. Oh, okay, yeah. So um, uh, I went to Berkeley, but I was just the, all I could think about was acting. And after my first, uh, my freshman year, got into this acting school in New York. 
uh, the Neighborhood Playhouse, which is <clears throat> one of the great ones. Yeah. Uh, Sandy Meisner was the teacher, and he was a part of the whole group theater crowd that that started, you know, basically the great traditions of American acting in the middle part of the 20th yeah, century. He's, he's not just a teacher. He's a technique. He's a technique. Yeah. Yeah, he's a technique. And I could fill your hour with stories about <laughs> Sandy, which I won't do. But someone should. <clears throat> someone should record that. Yeah, you know, actually. That's uh, really sure. fascinating. Yes, absolutely. And there was a stage show about him, but it was sort of mean-spirited. But I would happily do that if anybody was ever interested because he was All right. fascinating. People, you're on notice. People. Yeah. Future podcast. But at any rate, uh, uh on weekends, uh, I had uh, in some you know some theater workshops before going to school. I had um, done some mime and was kind of good at it and had fun with it. And on my fall weekends, beautiful fall weekends in New York, I thought oh, I'm going to go to the park and do some mime. And um, this is the seventies. Yes, this is the seventies. Mime is and big. The Shields and Yarnell era. Yep. That's right. And yep. Shields and Yarnell inspired me. I you know watched them when I was when I was in ACT's summer school and. Uh, I stole a few of their bits, and um, so I, I went with my roommates to the park one one weekend, a Saturday, and did mine, and it was brutal because <laughs> people were brutal to you. Yes, oh, because New Yorkers. Well, they're New Yorkers. It's Saturday; they're not paying. You know, you're working your butt off, and they walk by, <laughs> and 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 they look, okay. and they go, and they say. Hey, sweetie, he's kind of funny. What do we, come on, we got to meet Eloise. Let's go. Let's go. And they yeah. just walk away, yeah. you know? And uh, I said, I'm not doing that again. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Uh, I said, the only way I would do that maybe is if I had a partner. And uh, that was that. The next day, I'm walking around town with my roommates, and down the street walks this interesting character in painter's overalls and a Dutch boy cap. Oh, my gosh. And uh, my, he was an old friend of my roommates. From he's I'm probably from, not close enough to this thing. Uh, he was from Marin. Right? He's from Marin. Yeah. He's an old friend of my roommates. And they stopped, and they, he said, uh, "Jack, how are you doing?" You know, because he had that <laughs> voice, you know, this amazing voice. And uh, Jack says, "Robin, what are you doing?" And Robin was at school, at acting school in Juilliard. They start talking. I'm just sort of standing there listening, and all of a sudden, Robin turns to me and says. I saw you doing mime in the park yesterday. That was good to see being done again. And I kind of like, done again? What? What? I said, you saw it? He said, yeah. I said, do you do mime? And he said, no, no, but it, it's just always been an interest of mine, you know. And then they kept talking. And and I said, well, uh, you know, I'm kind of looking for a partner if you'd like to try it. And he said, yeah, I'll, I'll try it. And they talked oh, for a while. Oh my god! And, and left. And I turned to my friend afterwards. I said, "Does does he know what he's doing? Does he does he know how to do mine?" And this is way before he was anybody. Yeah. And uh, Jack turned to me and said, uh, "I have never seen him do mine, but he is quite talented. He's an incredibly physical actor, and I am sure that anything like that he would be really good at." That proceeded to be a two- to three-year relationship with Robin where on nice weekends in the fall and the spring, we would go out and do mime in front of the Metropolitan Museum uh, and uh, the Plaza Hotel and sometimes make a ton of money passing the hat. Uh, Wow, that is amazing. And I just – I taught him a few routines. He taught himself the rest as you can imagine. 
I used to have to go over and wake him up and get makeup on him. Uh, sometimes there would be a, a female there. Sometimes there would be another different female there the next weekend. Um, and um, at his in his room. Yeah, yeah. And um, was he rooming with Christopher Reeve at the time? Did he room with Christopher? Reeve? He did. In no, I th- yeah, he might have. I remember Christopher Reeve. Um, he might have. I can't recall. There were a bunch of us around that. Was it hard for? And this is, of course, completely off topic. Was it hard for Robin Williams to be silent? Oh yes. Uh, well, no. Very verbal. In mime, yeah. during the mime, he was fine. Uh, In general, though, no. <laughs> except except it was hard to control him, as you can imagine. So there were times we would sort of take turns doing routines, and I would be doing something, and I'd have the whole audience, and I'd be. You know, in the midst of whatever I was doing, and I'd look out, and they were all looking somewhere else. <laughs> and I'd turn around, and there'd be Robin, like up on a pedestal in front of the Metropolitan Museum, doing that fake makeout routine. You know, like <laughs> oh, this. Yes, I remember. And, um, he would jump into convertible cars. He'd jump into buses. You know, he he would do anything. We both did it. We'd do anything. We'd both do anything. We'd imitate people walking down the street, hide behind them when they didn't, so they didn't know what the hell was happening. Wow. Mime nightmare. Yeah. Well, Todd, you were deep into it, and it seems like you were feeling some level of success. What made you switch? Um, I, I, I got frustrated with what felt like the superficiality of acting. If, if my career had taken off quickly which almost no one does. I mean, I was in my 20s, so I was impatient. I might not have felt this, but given the kinds of cruddy roles you have to get for year after year after year, unless you're one of the very few who's really discovered, it just felt like a a somewhat meaningless and superficial way to live one's life. And my last acting teacher was the great Stella Adler. Wow. Who infused us with this social message of the playwright. You know, the social role of the playwright to, to say something about society and do something. And, you know, her, her, her mentors and idols were Clifford Odets and, and um, Arthur Miller and all these, you know, these social statement right. writers. And I thought, I, I want to be that, you know. I don't want to be this puppet. Had you had a writing background up to then? I had written in school, you mm-hmm. know, short stories and things. I, I kind of was an overwriter. My high school, <laughs> my high school English teacher said, Oppenheimer, if you cut out the second and third sentence of every paragraph, your writing would improve. That's funny. I think <laughs> oh, that's an editorial gem right there. It is. And I think everyone who ends up a writer starts out an overwriter. Yeah. Because that's what we get yeah. attention for. I mean, I, I wrote a novel where the first three chapters should have been condensed into about one page. <laughs> I think that's everyone's yeah. experience who writes their first novel. Yeah. You know, I'm curious... In the 70s were really a time where craft and acting and the 60s and the 50s uh, were sort of paramount in people's consciousness about acting. And I don't feel like it is anymore, at least not in the general public. Are you ever tempted to write about that time, write about the craft of acting? I would like to. I actually would. I wanted our current issue in the magazine right now. And if anybody mm-hmm. goes to craftsmanship.net, they will see it and, and have free access to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Current issue, the theme, every issue has a theme. And uh, the theme of this issue, is, this issue is the art of the word. And as part of that, I did want to write something, and maybe I will attach it to it at some point, um, on the particular approach to acting I learned at the Neighborhood Playhouse, which is the most intense kind of 
communication and conversation between people I've ever seen or studied or known anything about. I mean, they made us spend a year learning how to acutely listen to each other and Mm. pick up on each other's cues before we could really handle a script. They had these very structured styles of improvisations. I'm smiling because it sounds like John Wooden coaching UCLA and teaching them how to tie their shoes. Uh-huh. He did that to UCLA. Yeah. yeah. First thing, teach them how to tie their shoes. And there was something to that. I mean, you know, I can remember during an exercise and they would stop you and they'd say, wait, 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 wait. Didn't you notice that she was a little miffed by what you just said? <laughs> and then you said, well, yeah, I did. And I said, well, how do you feel about that? Well, I, I, I'm frustrated. Well, I, you didn't look frustrated. Mm. You know? I think in your 20s, that would be a that kind of slow learning would be like chomping at the bit to be Hamlet, you know, to do to exactly. Do it. And and one of the things that interests me is how it is. And I've kept in touch with the the person who runs the school now is the was at the school when I was there. Holy moly! And she married my teacher. Oh, who was did a, that back then? Who was a great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, right, exactly. It's such uh, an interesting lesson because I don't think any kid gets into acting to listen. Right, 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 exactly, exactly. And what was amazing was that particular style of acting. It was like it was the theatrical version of training for track with weights on your ankles. Mm, yeah. oh. Because when we got done with those improvisations and they handed us a script, oh my God. It was like we didn't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. It was just. The acting just came out of you. In the how you you we would you'd have the script in your lap. You never looked at it. You looked at the other person, and then you just read what but was that's, there. That is the smartest metaphor. Is so apt. You're a swimmer. You know, you swim wearing a couple of suits or something heavy dragging you down. Then you take it off. You are right. fast, and so it makes you a nimble actor. Right. To have that. Here's something that seems notable to me. So you decided no on the acting. I'm going to writing, but you didn't decide. You didn't start writing screenplays. I started writing plays. Okay, I so wrote one. Try. I wrote one bad one and one good one. Um, <laughs> That's good. And yeah, 50%. Uh, yeah, but it seemed too isolating to me, and so or it, it seemed too constricting as a as a form of language. Comes you know if you're if you're a good playwright, it's all in the dialogue. Mm-hmm. You know you can have a little bit of uh, stage direction, but um, not a lot. And so I thought, this is too constricting. And I, 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 no powers of description are useful. And, you right. know, I, let me try fiction. That was more liberating. And that's where I wrote the, the, the novel, the novel that should have been a paragraph. Um, <laughs> and uh, that was more interesting that way, but it was isolating. Here you are by yourself. And I'm an intensely social person. And someone suggested I try this, the campus newspaper. I was at Berkeley. I had taken a journalism class years before and enjoyed it. I thought, okay, I'll try this. I walked into the campus newspaper at UC Berkeley where people were still pounding on typewriters. And in about, I'd say, somewhere between 90 seconds and two minutes, I thought, this is it. Oh, wow. That's exciting. This is That it. is really interesting considering yeah. that. Did you feel that way about acting when you were younger? Uh, yes, uh, I did. You've had two this is it moments in your yeah. life? Man, yeah. you win. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe three. Um, yeah, if you go to Todd's LinkedIn page, you'll note that he was at Berkeley for 10 years. That, well, uh, well yeah. there were 10 years between <laughs> freshman year That's true. and graduation. I left for New York for five years of that. Yeah. And by the time you graduated, you were already publishing, weren't you? Uh, 
let's see. Well, at the Daily Californian, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and then it's campus newspaper. But yeah. And from there, did you go freelance or did you start working staff somewhere? No, I started working staff jobs. I did, you know, I did what's considered today the old school way of getting into the business. And, uh, you know, I worked at little teeny papers. I started the at the old school. Yeah. Fredericksburg Freelance Star, which is how they used to answer the phone there <laughs> in Fredericksburg, Virginia. <laughs> And uh, you know, writing weird features. Yeah, so I you even really had a did it the old school. Stint at the obit desk and the and the hospital entrances and exits. Oh wow! Desk, you know. Wow, I didn't uh, know. Th- I didn't even know about that. Yeah, and uh, and then I worked for the Sacramento Bee's uh, suburban editions in uh, in the northern suburbs like of Rockland Sacramento. And- Ro- I covered Rockland. Roseville and Loomis. Nice. Loomis. And, and that was the days when Loomis was still a fruit buying, you know, uh, mm-hmm. growing place, which was my dad's old business. So that was kind of cool. Um, and then after that, I went freelance for a while in Washington, D.C., way too young and too early for that, got my butt kicked, mm. uh, had a misbegotten assignment for the Atlantic Monthly, which fortunately introduced me to the great James Fallows, who became a friend and mentor and introduced me to an old colleague of his who ran one of the nation's great alternative news weeklies in North Carolina, the North Carolina Independent in Durham. Fabulous paper, great people, the best editor I've ever had including, I don't want to disparage the New Yorker and the Atlantic, but Ooh. better than editors there. She you was heard just it here. super smart. That's fantastic. And a super mentor, you know, really knew how to nurture somebody. Because you couldn't, they couldn't pay. Right. right. So they said, well, so that's what you got. Yeah. So we'll pay you by, by bringing you along, by developing. But, you know, you can't pay for that. That's right. So, yeah, priceless. So that's how we learned to be a magazine writer, was, was there. And... Um, and and, and, so. it's, and it's not inaccurate to say you plied that with some success. Yes. You showed in up in all the great places. You won the big awards. In fact, I read a piece of Todd's in the Atlantic several years before I ever met him. And I, don't, I didn't write down the title of it. But was the it one com- that led to the flickering mind. Oh, that's the computer delusion. The computer yeah. delusion. That you won the National Magazine Award yep. for. Right. And now, it was great. <clears throat> Bridget sort of spilled the beans already because, as I said in the intro, you guys know each other outside of this room. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, your kids are friends. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert. Buddies. Um, was there one article that you wrote that lit the spark for what eventually became craftsmanship? Yes. Uh, well, okay. that was a leading question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In sort of a circuitous way, I would say The Computer Delusion was that. The Computer Delusion was written in 1997. I was trying to figure out what year it was because I was just from. I think it was 97 or 98. I think it was 98 because my son was born in 98 and I was interested because I had a kid when I read it. Right. So that was during just when computers in schools were taking off. Clinton was in charge. He and Al Gore were all about computers everywhere. Yeah, getting them in all the classrooms. And, uh, you know, that and education were topic A. This is pre-9-11 mm-hmm. and all those things. So so this was <laughs> this is the days when issues like that could be the most important thing on people's minds. <laughs> we're so far past that. Yeah. Boy, you know, someone sent me a link to Hank Hyena. Do you remember Hank Hyena? He no. used to write kind of an off the kind of an off-the-wall Herb Kanish columnist for the Chronicle in the 90s. Yeah. And I, he's like, oh, do you remember this guy? And I was reading it, and every time I was like, man, San Francisco has a lot less 
angry back then. Uh-huh. A lot more innocent, a lot more whimsical. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we all were. Yeah. But yeah. that was a still an important topic, and yeah. st- it is still and an important that long topic. Ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's getting more important. I mean, yeah. you know, I get inquiries about it all the time. And uh, I always like to say I'm always news because I'm always on the losing side of that argument. Well, and actually the newest issue of Craftsmanship has an article about the play gap that does harken back to some of the things that came up in that article. Right, right, and, right, right. You know, so it's still a very living topic and right. still really important. Right. That actually is in a previous issue, but you can get oh, to Oh, sorry. It. Spring yeah. issue, I thought it was. Yeah. Hey, so hey, not hey. the newest. My mistake. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the, just to trace that path. So that article led to the book that I wrote, which came out in 2003, called The Flickering Mind, Saving Education from the False Promise of Technology. The research on that book and the, and the article basically led me to appreciate what we were losing as a society by diving so whole hog into technology. Mm-hmm. Not that technology doesn't have a role and all those kinds of things. It's very important. We all live by it. And by God, I certainly do. My, my magazine is on the internet. But we are so overboard, we've lost connection with what we do with our hands. And uh, there has been a long, millennial-long relationship between our brains and our hands and in fact, you could even say our heads, our hands, and our hearts. Mm-hmm. They all work together to develop each other. And when you cut out one of those things, you become a lesser human. And did this philosophy spring full formed into your head or did you arrive at it over time? Oh, over time, for yeah. sure. For sure. So once you arrived at that, though, I mean, you basically just gave me a mission statement. Not even a mission statement, but something leading up to a mission statement, something that would create a mission statement. Where did you find yourself then? You're still working. You're still a working journalist. When did it occur to you? I think I'm going to change gears here and try something completely different. Well, that's an interesting one. I I had uh, I'll confess I had initially planned to write a book on this topic, um, and um, I talked to agents that I uh, I had I had an agent. Um, she and I were parting ways for other reasons, so I was looking for different ones. I talked to agents, I talked to editors, my old editor, and everybody was interested. And um, this was right when, this was right after the 2008 recession when uh, there was already beginning to be some writing on the topic of, of you know, what our jobs well, yeah. are supposed to be about. I was actually going to say, because <clears throat> it had just occurred to me as you were describing your feelings about this. You say you're on the backside of trends, but actually, isn't this a trend? Yeah. I mean, you know, in some ways, a sort of a comical trend among millennials. If you watch yeah. Portlandia, yeah. you know, they're bringing us back to the 1890s and they right, show them right, working right. on looms and stuff. Right. Um, no, no, I, 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 I don't consider myself on the backside of trends. I consider myself on the forefront of losing trends. <laughs> <laughs> well said. <laughs> Um, but uh, in this case, and y- yes, you certainly see a huge hunger among everybody today, and it's among the techies almost more than others. Right. To, Which is fascinating. To find ways to reconnect with using their hands, their mm-hmm. old-fashioned methods of creativity. And there's definitely a lot of newfound respect for the craftsmen, right. for artisanal. There's right. a word. There's that word. Right. Right. Well, and that and that's a lot of what animated me. I mean, I grew up. I grew up partly in the city and partly in the country. My dad used to ranch. I've spent a lot of time on farms and on ranch. And uh, my dad was, you know, he's a fruit buyer, and, and he had respect for these people. And uh, and whenever you meet them, you're you were humbled into silence. 
Mm-hmm. You know, because these people know something we have no concept of. Mm-hmm. And so to watch them and to begin to appreciate what they do, not only what they can build, but what they see in the process of making what they make is awe-inspiring for me. And that's what I just thought. I have to, I have to bring this quality of excellence up out of its hidden spot and into existence. There goes Todd's notes. Um, is there ever a gap? And I'm jumping ahead a little bit here. I feel like there's there's several different gradations of people who work with their hands. Mm-hmm. There's people who work with their hands for a living and have for generations. Mm-hmm. And there's people who now are sort of echoing, remember hippies did the back to the land movement. Mm. These people are like, well, I've, I work in an office and I can't stand it. I'm going to go you know, work, do a, become a woodworker. Mm-hmm. When you go to the first group of people and you say, I want to write an article about you because you grow strawberries, do they go, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Do you ever find that happening? Uh, yes, I have found that. We had a story about a subject that fascinates me, and I went all the way to Tennessee to report it, about uh, the revival of traditional shaving gear. Mm-hmm. Now, I read that. <laughs> and it's one of my favorites. Yeah. I mean, it's actually a topic that I've been studying for about three years. Yeah, you're all about blades. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all about blades. Yeah. And actually, a friend of mine Don't tell put me, me onto it. We're in a very small room. That kind of frightens me. <laughs> for that reason, he said, you know, hey, Todd, you're a man of steel. Uh, why? Oh. Well, what kind of a shaving system do you use? There's you're our, there it steel. is, Todd Oppenheimer, man, man of, of steel. steel. <laughs> We know the title of this podcast. <laughs> so I said, oh, I'm so funny you ask because I use these crappy Gillette razors mm. that cost too much money and don't last. And whenever I go to replace the cartridge, they've upgraded to something that mm-hmm. I don't want to buy, but I have to. Mm-hmm. And it makes me crazy. And, and I got to get them out of the little jail. I actually remember range. you and I talking about this at lunch one day here at the Grotto. That's right. Yep. And so this friend of mine said, well, you know, there's this whole community around the old fashioned shaving gear. And I'm not talking about the straight razors that, you know. Oh, you're not? No, no, no. This is, that everybody thinks immediately, oh, straight yeah, like razor. Drop and- yeah, I mean, there are people who do that. I have one. Uh, uh, do you ever even, use it? I have used it once. It looks scary. Tr- with fear. Yeah, uh, yeah I would be I terrified. got Bob Kramer, the knife maker who I wrote about. He's oh, did you make you one? No, no, no. Oh. He's the knife maker that I profiled yeah. in The New Yorker. He, I got him sort of interested in it. Oh. And I talked to him about the straight razor. This guy knows so much about what a sharp knife's all about. Oh. He says, I am not taking that thing anywhere near my face. Oh, wow. That's so, scary. Yeah, so... But what I'm talking about is the old-fashioned razors that you saw your parents use, mm-hmm. which or maybe your the grandpa. Safe, safety the safety, razor? the double-edged blades, oh, the, okay. the ones with a little butterfly opening, and you yep. drop a double-edged blade. Yeah. In there. How much does a Gillette cartridge cost when you go to the store? About four bucks, right? I have no idea. That's what they cost now. They cost anywhere between three and four bucks, sometimes more now, with all their fancy. This mm-hmm. is and there's like three or four blades. Uber and, smooth strip. Right. Yeah, the strip. Not yeah. a one of them is nearly as good as the Gillette blades that they used to make and that many companies still do make because they bought Gillette's old oh, machinery yeah. in Israel, in Russia, in Poland, in Mexico, in India, and they are sold, the best in the world are sold for about 40 cents each. <laughs> and they will kick ass on any Gillette cartridge, which, by the way, when it sells for $4, is a markup of, it's in my story, I think something over 1,000%. Right. So anyway, we wrote about that. We found a guy who's in the U.S. who's starting to make the old-fashioned razors again. 
Uh, he makes some fascinating ones, and I called him and said, talked for a while. I said, you know, I think I might want to come out and visit you. He, he couldn't understand it at all. Right. I would think there'd be a class of people who, who can't get why. Yeah. These and it was great. Uh, not only was he fascinating, but he had found this great old machine shop. <laughs> he looked all over the country for a machine shop that would make these razors. He couldn't find one. He was told, can you believe this? This is talk about the decline of American manufacturing. He was told at each machine shop, I don't know if we can make anything that precise. Ooh. Yeah. Can you imagine a machine shop saying that? Well, it's. Uh, That's like know. a baker saying, you know, I don't know if we can make anything that, that you could actually that good. eat. <laughs> you well, know? They say in the West that there are no longer masons who can make a true arch. Uh, like of any substantial size uh, that you have to go to yeah. Eastern Europe, places mm. like that, where it's really been passed down hand to mouth because it's 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 technique. It's all mm. about what you've learned. You can't mm. just like computer model it. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I can see that. So anyway, yeah, so he finally found a machine shop 40 miles from his house and we went to visit him. And this guy was great. He was a former Marine or something. He was like a fifth degree karate black belt. Cool. And he had started this thing basically taking jobs that no other machine shops would take. And he was now making stuff for rocket manufacturers and all kinds of stuff. And he says, he said, yeah, we'll, we'll make this razor for you. And they had the whole setup and they'd made, all, it was it was just cool. It sounds like yeah, you've, you're very passionate talking about it. It sounds like it warmed your heart. Oh, yeah. Nuts and bolts. So, uh, ah, interesting to use that term, uh-huh. talking to Todd. Yeah. Um, so you have kind of your idea. You know what you want to do. How do you decide that it's not going to be a book, it's going to be a magazine. Yeah, I'm glad you got back to that. Cause, so I was planning to write a book. Um, publishers and editors were saying, oh, I don't know, all these different people that you've chosen that you'd feature in the book, they all seem interesting. Obviously, you're a good writer. But I don't see what hangs us all together as one argument. And I had the problem that I'm a writer and I'm not a craftsman. And more and more the mm. publishing industry wants things by people who mm. – are from this thing they're writing about, you know, have their own personal tie to it. And I'm just an observing a reporter. Now, if I was as famous as Michael Lewis or something like that, you can get away with it. But Mm -hmm. if you're not a name, you can't just be an observer anymore, a good reporter and sell Mm -hmm. a great, you know. I've heard that. Mm -hmm. And so I thought about it. I thought about it. At the time, my wife on Oppenheimer was doing a new business on the Internet herself, a sleepwear um, deal, really cool thing that, uh, was great, but you know, she couldn't sustain because it wasn't funded enough or whatever. Anyway, but she was all having a great time at the time. She says, "You should, you should do, you should do this on the internet. You should have a website about you know these things you're finding, all these people you're meeting. You, you're so excited about them." And my reaction was, "Are you kidding? You know, given my credentials, I'm supposed to like <laughs> give that up? Are you kidding?" Well, I, and this also raises another point that you were a writer, not a publisher, right? And, and not an editor. And not an right. editor. It's a lot of work. Right. So how hard was it to convince yourself that you could be those things? It was very hard. Yeah. And I'll tell you what turned it. It was kind of fun. She and I went to an event here in San Francisco uh, at the Italian American Cultural Institute uh, where they had different young Turk artisans in different fields. That You know, there's plenty of them here in the city. There was someone making the leather bags. There was the... There was the coffee maker. There was the chocolatier. You know, all, all these people doing all these cool things. And we spent the evening listening, and they were all fascinating. And we came out. We're walking to our car, and I said to Ann, I said, 
you know, these guys are all fascinating. Everything, every, you know, every one of them has something I'd love to follow. I can't figure out what ties these things together in the way these publishers are asking for. And she said, that's because there isn't something. Because this is a movement. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people doing a lot of different things, and that's why you should do it on the Internet, because you want to track this movement. It's not a one thing. It's a living thing that changes. And I thought, she is 100% right. And I think shortly after that, I decided to try to do this and uh, to create some sort of a website publication about it. And many iterations later, in uh, January of 2015, we launched the uh, Craftsmanship Magazine, it was called at the time. Now it's called Craftsmanship Quarterly. Um, and we launched it on a very far afield topic to set our stakes in the ground right away. Which was? Farm, farming. Farming. Yeah, it was called, I think the, the theme of that issue was cultivating craftsmanship. And we borrowed, we, 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 we got intellectual permission from this, from a great quote from uh, the great Wendell Berry. The, oh, the, yeah. The uh, agronomist philosopher, and he said, you know, I see uh, 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 farmers as a kind of uh, uh, craftsman or artist in the highest sense. And he has a couple of other comments like that. And uh, I had a, a, a one farmer in particular who was fascinating in pushing the envelope in, uh, in terms of biological uh, organic farming in ways that nobody else was. And a uh, very ambitious guy, small farmer. And I actually had tried to sell this story to the New York Times, to the New Yorker, to the Atlantic, to everybody. Nobody wanted it. And now you get to buy it. Right. And they all said, you're going to make a case about agriculture as a whole based on this guy who farms two and a half acres? Give me a break. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I finally sold it to one publication. We didn't end up agreeing on how it should be done, so I pulled it and I – published it as our lead story. It has been far away the most popular story we have published. I think it's so great. like a hundred it still gets viewers. It's had hundred and fifty thousand readers and downloads and whatever. It's and, long. And th- and that's something most writers could only dream of having yeah. that many readers. Yeah. And you publish something so long, yeah. ostensibly esoteric. Yeah. And mm-hmm. look how many people have found it. Yeah, it's called The Drought Fighter and I think it's nine thousand words or something. Oh, amazing. And I used to say to these publishers you know they say well you know i'll do it for three thousand words or something like that and i said i said this is the kind of topic that the shorter you make it the more boring it will get Mm -hmm. you will only be interesting if you get into the weeds so to speak and get into the details and get underneath the earth and show why the hell that matters we were saying in the intro the new yorker used to do stories like that Mm -hmm. long long stories and they were interesting i know i know the new yorker in my view is a victim of its own intelligence mm-hmm. in the sense that those writers are so gifted and so elegant that they often don't have to dig very deep in order to have mm-hmm. to keep reading. Mm-hmm. And so you get done, you've just been entertained beautifully, and the language couldn't be better, mm-hmm. but you haven't learned anything. Mm-hmm. And we try to make sure in every one of our stories mm-hmm. you learn something that you didn't know before. Well, I was going to point to that too because your stories are usually accompanied by links leading to resources and how it's to learn amazing. more. True, but with a key difference, we're, I think, the only place that does this. We have no links inside our stories. Oh, right. Zero. 
because I believe in the sanctity of the read. I don't want to disturb people. We work months and months on some of these stories. And I want people to finish the story. And at the bottom of the story, there will always be a set of resources if you Mm -hmm. want to learn more. But we do not stick them in the story. That's great. So how long did it take you to get comfortable making editorial decisions like that? Um... That one I made fairly early on, and I was pretty comfortable with it early on. It was partly influenced by that fellow. I think his name is Jack Conti, who runs a arts website. Um, and he – it was something about him being against advertising because advertising also pulls you away from the Of course. Media. And I just thought, you know – it just—it was just my instinct, and I—and I'm fine with it, and I'm happy. I think people are getting used to it, and. Uh, um, well, I've never heard any other editors say that, but it makes such sense. It's total sense. Because I know if I'm reading something, when yeah. I see that link, like, oh. You go, and then you're gone. And you're gone. And you and you're somewhere, if not even unconsciously, you're not happy. Because, oh, completely. You know, you've just ruined what you were into, yeah. and then you're lost. And do you come back, or do you go to the next link that you just saw? Right, there might be a more interesting. Well, I mean, story. I go down those rabbit holes all the time, yeah. and yeah. I feel like I used to when I was a kid, and I would spend the whole day inside watching every MTV video over and over again <laughs> for five hours, just like dirty and useless. And yes. I do, no matter how high minded yes, I right. started you out, keep going because the next video might be better. I know. Right, exactly. Is that, and I, we got uh, early on in publishing, and that, I think part of what's given me confidence is we've gotten such wonderful notes from readers That's and great. from some of the writers I work with. I got a note this week from a writer. I just, I was in tears. He was so appreciative for what I did. So I, and our lead story called The Architecture of Trust, which I hope we get to talk about because it's our most topical. I actually think we should talk about it because it's so timely and it's so um, surprising, maybe. Bring it. I haven't yeah. read it yet, but yeah. bring it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's great. I'm surprising in that it's really about um, civil discourse, mm-hmm. and there hasn't been a lot of that mm-hmm. right. for a while. Exactly. And that's where the assignment started. I, I thought about it a lot. Um, it was the lead story in this issue of ours now, as I said, called The Art of the Word. Um, and I talked to different writers about it. Um, some had ideas and wanted to do it, and they didn't work out very well, and we civilly decided not to pursue it. And this guy's a linguist and a very, very a talented writer as well. And he's got a Ph.D., I think, in linguistics. And what's his name? His name is Michael Erard, and he lives in Maine, uh, very bright. And he and I went back and forth <laughs> at times more often than I think he <laughs> – Expected. He had patience for it, but he was great. He was totally a pro about it, and uh, we we really got to the same page. And um, he found this outfit that I don't think mm-hmm. most of us have heard about in Florida called Village Square. That is, their business is staging these these civic dialogues. I'm so impressed Whoa. that people are willing to do it. Yes, mm-hmm. it's a it's a very high minded civic and civil. Civic and civil, and, and from and and as you see in the photo at the top of the story, it's from people of all kinds of different backgrounds, both ethnically and politically. And the, the photo on the top of the story has a black conservative Baptist priest and uh, a Muslim woman and a white guy, <laughs> who I think might be a 
I, is he, I think he might be a rabbi. Um, and they're smiling and laughing. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's another that photo happens. where he's in yeah. tears. This black priest is in tears and he's being comforted by a white guy in a ponytail. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like a hippie kind of looking. Yeah. Guy. Yeah. And um, so anyway, this guy, Michael, found this group, um, uh, Villa Square, and, and basically excavated the meaning of what they do brilliantly. And he went through... You know, all the different people who are doing this kind of work, um, Jonathan Haidt, who's the famous sort of, uh, I think they call, he calls him the, is it uh, moral psychologist, I guess, of mm-hmm. some sort. And he's kind of gotten a name for himself of breaking down the kinds of uh, the moral issues that underlie our politics that we forget and that trump the facts, excuse me, using that word, that, <laughs> that override the facts. Um, and... Uh, uh, you know, and, and he really does a great job. I mean, he has a line in the story where he says, you know, the basic problem is that we're all in a feedback loop. In order to overcome our biases, Amen. we have to overcome our biases. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's hard. Yeah, I was going to comment that, but that's not my job. My job is actually to note that by doing this craft, the craft, of, what is the, the theme, the craft of the word? The art of the word. The art of the word. You're almost coming full circle now. Mm. That you're right. coming back to words as a craft themselves. Right. Right. Was that a conscious decision? Oh, absolutely. I've been thinking about this issue for two years. Oh, wow. And um, I'm a hobbyist calligrapher. That uh, explains the article I read about the scribes. That's right. So, yeah, there's an article in this about Jewish scribes, which is fascinating. So fascinating. Oh, it's I a absolutely total loved it. I mean, these are people who are still in 2017 going through the most excruciating labor. I labors. loved it. I love that they're carving feathers mm-hmm. in these incredibly sleek modern interiors behind brownstones. Yes. I mean, Yes. Just every level of it is very right, cool. Right, right, right. And there that so many of the articles in craftsmanship answer the question that I always ask, how do these people make a living? Yes, <laughs> yes. Those right. guys make a good living. They make a pretty good living. Yeah, yeah. they sell a hand-lettered Torah for $100,000. Yeah, that ain't bad. I love it. Yeah. I mean, Granted, that's a lot of letters. <laughs> it is a, it's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a lot, a lot of, of well, work. And, and in fact, when you break down what they sell, I think it's a mezuzah, which is very right. small, for like 100 bucks, And I think it takes them yeah, a day or something. Right. So, Do you remember, that, that just made me think of when we were kids, you were probably a teenager, there was a commercial for IBM that had a monk named Brother Joseph who was oh, yes. mm-hmm. painstakingly writing this. a book and they say we need 500 copies mm-hmm. and he would secretly go to IBM and get a copy. It just made me think of that. Right. Those rabbis right. probably right. aren't doing that. No, they're not. Or, they're not rabbis. They're it's scribes. Not. So how easy has it been for you to adopt the publisher role, to think about budgets and scheduling? And paying writers. Like paying writers, yeah. Well, uh, it's been it's been easier than I thought. And it's been more of a pleasure than I thought. I mean, I'm I'm doing. I used to do a lot more writing, and I'm not doing so much now. Partly because I feel that my first duty is to the writers, so I want to be there for them as much as I can. I want them to develop the way they want to. I want the piece to develop the way they want it to. And so I try to, you know, uh, I I pay pretty well. I, I pay. Um, I guess I don't know. Guys, you may not I want to say, say then you'll get a million inquiries. No, I, it's it's basically going rates for for uh, publishing on on the internet better than many other places. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think there's many places that publish only on the internet that pay better, but there's certainly print magazines that play better. But anyway, I, I pay fine, and uh, I think that's important because I push writers really hard. And they, you know, there's several drafts. There's a lot of rethinking. Um, and uh, those who really want to develop their 
their craft uh, appreciated because that's part of the pay. It's also something you rarely get anymore. Right. This kind of editorial attention right. is a lost art as well. Yeah, and I've, I, that's the other thing. I mean, I don't consider myself the great genius writer or editor, but I've been lucky. I've had some of the greatest editors that exist today. You know, Bill Whitworth from The Atlantic is incredible. Um, you know, Fallows, uh, Catherine Fulton at the North Carolina Independent, others. And so I try to kind of channel them. And, uh, in fact, I'm on the phone with Whitworth all the time. He's a friend. And I'll say, oh, my God, I just ran into this problem with this this writer. And, I, I uh, you know, I don't want this writer to feel frustrated. You know, what would you suggest? I mean, I had one writer call their attorney on me. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. And, That's and, an empowered writer. Yeah, exactly. They and have an attorney. I know. Holy I know. Holy. That was interesting. And, uh this writer was, you know, as a, a kind of a, a particular case, but, you know, I had contributed to that problem and I had to sort of own it. And we got through it just fine. We're really good friends now. The piece was phenomenal. Um, and um, at any rate, uh, uh, what... Uh, the business side. How do you, how have you adjusted to having to deal right. with that? So uh, I found... Of course, I've got you know some contributors to the magazine now that 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 allow us to spend what's needed within reason for a few years until we start bringing in grants. We're now part of a philanthropic venture, which was going to be my next. We need to talk about that yeah. for yeah. sure. Yeah. So yeah, that it's called the Craftsmanship Initiative, and that's sort of the umbrella venture over the magazine. And the tagline for that initiative is uh, it's called Craftsmanship Initiative: Create a World Built to Last. Oh, beautiful! And, uh, and the, is the magazine the tip of the spear, or is it? That's a good way to put it. Yeah, we are, the magazine is sort of its its premier product, its centerpiece. Um, it's what drives a lot of our ideas. But over time, we hope to develop programs that that will um, involve uh, some apprenticeships, some scholarships, some events, some awards. We're looking for partners who are interested in participating. Um, um, and uh, so that that's part of the mission here is that we want to um, we want to be sort of the spearhead behind a new way of thinking about our job skills. Um, it's the whole notion of sustainability is something that we want to kind of redefine. That first issue on farming was all about sustainability. I think I had a line in the story saying, you know, we're about sustainability 2.0 because it's kind of gotten to be a hackneyed term and yeah. sort of meaningless. But there's a, there's aspects of sustainability that people don't think about. When they hear that word, they usually think, well, that means, you know, uh, farming or, uh, you know, or the com- clothes. Composting. You're composting. Or maybe maybe I buy some clothes that, that are made of natural fiber or mm-hmm. something. Well, sustainability is much more than that. It has to do with job skills that will last. It has to do with treating people to, you know, having a humanistic approach to how we build our workforce so that that's built to last. I mean, we've just hollowed out our workforce like crazy. And, you know, this, this, this jobless recovery or this income riseless recovery mm. is one example. of it. And so we're trying to sort of build a real three-pronged approach to the way we define that, that, you know, that uh, creating a world built to last is about creativity is about humanistic approaches to how you live and work, and it's about sustainability in terms of how we use our resources. And how much of, I mean, what's the, we've only got about five minutes left, so I'll just real quick ask. So the division of labor within the foundation and the magazine, mm-hmm. are you, do you have your hands in everything, or is it your magazine 
I, I have my hands in everything. I am more and more turning over the business side of things to our new managing director, who's a firecracker named Gaynor Strachan Chun. Oh. And she just started. Uh, she's fabulous. She's that must great. Be a relief then to be able oh, to turn huge. that over. And she's totally capable and well connected. And she just started in January, so she is more and more taking over those reins. We talk all the time. She's here at the grotto, which is great. And uh, so I'm now more able to, uh, on this issue. I think was the first issue where I actually slept during <laughs> deadline time. Usually, I sleep <laughs> about three or four hours the last few weeks a night. And, uh, and I you've think missed that, some really fun things because you were on deadline with the magazine. Yes. You missed um, Secret Santa. Yes. You know, I was sad for yes. Todd. He yeah. was right there, but he was working so hard he couldn't come. Yeah. Oh, just like locked yeah. in the office. Yeah, and the I family, know. you know, it's just awful. Oh, I just, yeah. That I would don't be the hard. Him, you know. you have, well, I guess you have teenage kids. No, they're One. young. Well, they're 14 and 12. Okay. Fourteen's yeah. a teenager. Yeah, fourteen. Fourteen now. Yeah, yeah. it's right. just the beginning. Uh, you know, and I had forgotten sphere. that you were an actor because your son's interested in acting. You, does he look to you, or does he just say you don't know what you're talking about? <laughs> no, he he does. He's good about it. He he asked me some advice. Um, he is at the School of the Arts, and what was fun, oh, he the had Ruth a, Asawa School of the, the Arts. Ruth Asawa School mm-hmm. of the Arts, very close to my house. He had mm-hmm. uh, he had a scene for a show, and he and I were going to work on it together, and. Time got away from us, and I didn't, and he was fantastic. And I asked him what choices he made in terms of how he did it, and they were better than any suggestions that I could have thought of. And I thought, that's "That's quite okay. That's pretty good. Well, I would spend another podcast. I'd love to have you back to talk about your time acting. I don't know if it fits into our format, but I want to hear about it. Um, But I wanted to ask you one more thing. Yeah. So is craftsmanship your life's work? I think so. I mean, uh, my old mentor, Catherine, when I was thinking about this as a book, she said, Todd, you know, this is not just a book. This is, mm-hmm. this is, I've known you a long time. This is you. This is what you want to do. And, and I really like that the first issue was about farming because it kind of it was a little nod to your dad. That's right. That's right. That's and kind of what you knew. For me, it's, it's a metaphor for how you look at excellence in life in general. I mean, the, 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 one of the taglines we have for the venture is the architecture of excellence. And, uh, you know, my view is if these craftsmen, if these artisans are so cool, and everybody always thinks they're cool. If you ever get a chance to meet one, you're like, these are so cool. <laughs> well, if they're so cool and they're such geniuses and they're such masters of their field, why don't we make greater use of what they know? Absolutely. You know, why isn't either scaled up or why isn't there some principle or discovery of theirs that we are using somewhere else? Or why don't we encourage our kids to go that way? Right. Right. Know, there's so little That's available. You know, I just have a son going to college next year, and no one is saying, "Don't go to college, apprentice yourself with a master bladesmith." Right. Which that there's some value in that. Right. Right. Definitely. Right. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's a great place for passion. Yeah. Fantastic. Well said. Uh, this has been great, Todd. Tell us everything people need to know about how to get a hold of you and the magazine. Well, the magazine's website is craftsmanship.net, and it's also linked to the initiative. That's got a longer website name. Uh, that's craftsmanshipinitiative.org. But if you just go to craftsmanship.net or just Google Craftsmanship Quarterly, you'll see it. There's a link to both. Um, uh, you can contact us through the magazine. I see every email that comes in through the Contact Us site. If there are writers who got are interested, um, just look at what we do and look at our parameters and send me a well-reasoned pitch. 
Um, and brace yourself. Yeah, and please also join us. It Absolutely. costs you nothing. All we need is a login with an email and a password, and join us, and you'll be up to date and kept up to date on everything. And you will not be spammed. You will not be spammed. <laughs> we do not share emails. That's right. Craftsmen who make spam. Fantastic. Uh, as for us, you can email us at grottopod.gmail. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at the grottopod. Correct. Tell everyone who our producers are, BQ. Uh, we want to thank our producers, Lorianne Doyle, Beth Weingarner, and Lee Kravitz, without whom this would not be possible. It certainly wouldn't. And also our music from Sugartown. Right. And how can people get a hold of you? At Bequintrust. You got a website there, too? I do. BridgetQuinnAuthor.com. You can find me at that Larry Rose, and you can also listen to my other podcast, Is It Good for the Jews? That's all for us this week. BQ, take us out. All right, folks, read, write, and just keep working. Till next time.